It is Friday, March 20th, 2020. We're still under quarantine at the tune-up, but that's not going to stop us from getting stuff out there. It is the Marvin Gaye Regent. Play the music. Welcome on into the show. My name is Danny Gallagher, and I'm joined by the Snare Campaign Provocateur, Mr. I Love Madonna More Than Tupac Did. It's Benny Horowitz. What's up? Dude, I, man, <laughs> this Madonna controversy really took on a life of its own. But to the bitter end, I'm going to fight for Like a Virgin on this list, man. You just don't get it. Fucking 90s babies, you just don't get it, okay? Hey, oh, we're pulling the ageism card now. Okay, that's cool. Thanks, guy. <laughs> but what's up, dude? How's life in quarantine going? Yeah, we're doing good, man. Everything's fine so far. Everyone's healthy. Trying to stay positive. Control the variables I can control. Not overdo it with the news. And, uh, you know, try to get through this in a positive way. I'm looking at it, you know, in the long scale, right? I'm going to live a lot of weeks, probably thousands in my life. And, you know, if I got to do eight of them, in kind of a weird way, then fuck it. It's not that many, and we'll try to make the best of the situation any way we can. I have some positives, yeah. okay? Um, there was no fucking St. Patrick's Day parties. Yes. Okay, okay. Finally. Well, now Ho- Hoboken wasn't covered in vomit Come for on. once. Uh, no fucking loud, drunk people waking up my kids at, you know, uh, 3 o'clock in the morning wearing green shit. More than happy to Benny, not have this. Benny, this is so okay? fucking disrespectful. I can't even. First, you hit me with the ages, I and mean, then you go straight for my culture. Are you kidding me? Like, <laughs> like th- this is the problem, Danny. St. Patrick's Day is not your fucking culture, okay? It's just one stupid day that that's been appropriated your culture. You know, there's a lot of other shit over there, right? James Joyce, Finn Lizzie. Why don't you fucking celebrate something else? You know. Um, now, more positives. Tom Brady marketing genius literally breaks news in the middle of a fucking virus when there's no sports media cycle that he's leaving and owns the news for three days i love it and i love him for doing it because it it's gotten me randomly following the nfl free agency which i haven't done in in ages uh i'm reading many books which is good and i'm gonna try to read books Many leather bounds. I'm going to try and take in one a week while I'm doing oh this. Sharpen the mind. And then, you know what else is kind of funny about this? What? I like sort of watching legions of people under 30 years old looking up from their phones and considering their own death for the first time. <laughs> I, I don't know. It might be a healthy exercise instead of just, you know, avoiding it with word racer and social media. Maybe every once in a while, you got to look up in the world and realize, oh, I'm going to die. This is fragile and precious. Let's take it seriously, you know? I think Benny wants to fight me, ladies and gentlemen. First, he comes out <laughs> millennials, St. Patrick's Day, and ages him on me not knowing the world. This is fucking bullshit. Yeah, we got to start bro, over. <laughs> I know I'm, I know I'm old as fuck. I'm still technically a millennial. I am. I am. And he says all of this as we FaceTime on this conversation, looking at his goddamn screen. You are so full of shit. I can't even... <laughs> Today we are getting in to the Marvin Gaye region, and I'm really excited about that one. 
this one. We have some great contenders in the field. But first, we've got to share the results from the James Brown region. In our one versus eight matchup, Sergeant Pepper versus Joshua Tree. <laughs> oh, and the music, music guys were smiling down upon us. Sergeant Pepper took that one easily. In our 2-7 matchup, Kinda Blue versus Ready to Die, Miles Davis, the cool himself, took care of business. I was happy to see that one, too. Uh, we got a, it got a little bit tighter when we got to the 3-6 matchup. Sex Machine by James Brown and Miseducation of Lauren Hill. We Tight had a tie race. on Twitter, but Ooh. we had uh, but on our Instagram vote, and you can follow all of the action for all this on the Tune Up HQ, on Instagram, and on Twitter. Miseducation of Lauren Hill, one up by three votes. Tight squeeze. <laughs> I felt like that could have been an era one, you know? Yeah, exactly. Old, old people went for James Brown. The young people went for Lawrence. This is a, what we've been talking about. This is a, the new poll, the new list. This is not, <laughs> not the old one with, with four Beatles records in the top ten. <laughs> I was very surprised, though, that, that, that people recognized the greatness of Kind of Blue. I thought that, you know, like, it was all a dream. I used to read Word Up magazine was going to take care of business, but no. You know what it is, man? It's one of those things where, like, if you decide that you're going to take music seriously at some point, <laughs> regardless of what kind of music you get into, it's like if you don't have that record, you know you should have that record. Yeah. But I doubt how many people who own that record listen to that right. record. That's one <laughs> of the things. Um, because it is uniquely owned. It's a jazz record uniquely owned by a lot of non-jazz music right. fans. Just because it's like supposed to be in there. It's like <laughs> when you go into any punk rocker's house in the world and they have a copy of like Steal This Book or... Uh, <laughs> Or, or something like that. Or On the Road. They all had On the Road at some point. It's forgetting that Jack Kerouac got old and turned into a total piece of shit, you know? I know most people probably don't listen to Miles Davis on the daily, and I don't know if this is a disrespectful thing or not, but I put on Miles Davis Pandora to go to sleep all the time. You do? Yeah. How does that work when you get to like all the heroin jazz shit? Man, I don't know. I find that it... Give me, that might give me nightmares. <laughs> It really eases my mind, like heroin jazz, just straight up, you know, rocking right. me to sleep. I think we found what, uh, what your 30s are going to bring you, Teddy. Good for you. Good life choices. I support it. I support it. You try anything once, all right? Pat? I'm going to become like Craig Kilborn on Instagram. There you go. And then our final matchup and this one we knew was you know it was off to the races and it was a race that in this demographic bruce springsteen normally wins bruce springsteen born to run taking out the queen of soul herself and the album lady Oof. soul by aretha franklin and this was an, an absolute smackdown i mean this is i mean aretha franklin died a couple years ago we didn't need to do this to her i'll tell you that we i mean but we called it right because yeah. of the the obvious demo that we're working in here <laughs> you know the fact that yeah, we don't even have to talk about it. Somebody already sent me something on Twitter that could <laughs> incriminate me in some things I don't need. So, so uh, yeah, good. Congrats, boss. All right, ninety five point nine, ninety five point five percent. That's that's oh, wild. My goodness. So, what is the equivalent of that in a in a basketball like a tourney matchup? Is that like a 40, 50 point win? Like. Uh, we got scrubs out there for the last like twelve minutes. That bad? It's like you know how how the Bucks have been able to load manage Giannis because he hasn't had to play this season. Like yeah. like Bruce probably sat uh, 
Will Steven for like like last two encores on this one. Good God. Yeah, he sent his proxy. <laughs> he said, Retainer. Retainer. All right. So as we put a bow on the James Brown region, uh, the the namesake himself out of the tournament. But, you know, with all due respect, I don't think we put his best album forward. But Lauren Hill, great album. And that may be the most modern album that we have on here, even though, you know, we've had some conversations. Uh, Benny, not exactly Amy Winehouse fan. But. Oh, not not true. <laughs> See, this is where you, you know you write me one text <laughs> trying to kick out Madonna for Amy Winehouse. All of a sudden, I'm not a fan. We only have 32 slots here, pal. You know, and 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 uh, you know, just because you decided it has new classic status, does that mean it has classic status? I also don't see a lot of Madonna records on these top 100. I thought I was being progressive. You know. I also ha- I also have a wife. I mean, I feel like she's still like she's trying to dress like Madonna. She still thinks she's the most iconic, cool woman and fashion figure that that there is during a time. I mean, again, Listen. it's one of those things. If I'm going to put on a Whitney Houston album or a Madonna album, I'm probably going Whitney. You know, mm. but let's talk about the long term effects. Whitney had a very long term effect too. We could actually make a case for Whitney Houston on this list too, oh, if you'd like. So. And I'd I'd love to, but it's like now the first Whitney Houston album, which would probably be my argument if if we're gonna try to put Whitney in this conversation, right? Yeah, I will always love you is on a movie soundtrack, so we got so we can't do that. The the importance of that first Whitney Houston album for Clive Davis, kind of resurrecting his career. If we get to Whitney in this conversation, I think would be a very interesting thing to kind of unpack. And one thing to consider, you know, that that has come up in time and time again doing research for this list is the amount of great albums and artists who didn't exactly pen their best songs. Yeah. Uh, a lot of them were ghostwritten, helped by producers, covers, a number of different things. And uh, Whitney Houston surprisingly wrote the bulk of her own music. Mm. And that's a great transition for what we're going to talk about today. We are into the Marvin Gaye region and our first matchup in this thing, Marvin Gaye, what's going on versus Paranoid? Oh, Black Sabbath's Paranoid. <laughs> this is a tough one. So let's get into what's going on a little bit, yeah. okay? Because I don't, I want people to know why Marvin Gaye, what's going on, is in the number one seed. You know, it doesn't, to some, it might feel like a lower seed. To me, it's as firmly a number one as there can be for, for a variety of reasons. Now, there's a lot of interesting history to this record I hadn't realized. So we talked in the last episode about the fact that Marvin Gaye, specifically on this album and groups like The Temptations, were really kind of getting into protest music slash social commentary music and telling the stories really explicitly of where they're from and the struggles they're going through. And I hadn't realized that on this album, Marvin Gaye's brother had just come home from Vietnam. And he was writing a lot of these songs in the perspective of his brother coming home to the inner city from Vietnam. And then, you know, even though this was like his 11th studio album, he was married to Barry Gordy's wife. He went to record this at Hitsville, USA. I mean, he was as big of a star in this world as you could have been at the time, but uh, you know, because of some personal issues, his cohort on the, the song Ain't No Mountain High Enough, who he collaborated with quite a bit, Tammy Terrell, 
got uh, sick and, and passed away just at this time. And it kind of led to um, what I hadn't realized, but a sort of Brian Wilson-esque headspace for Marvin Gaye going into this record. And some of the places he went uh, lyrically and and sonically with a lot of the different sounds, the overdubs he used where, you know, it sounds like people just talking on the street and, you know, you're singing over it, this real feeling that like, you know, there's a couple of songs on that record. You can almost imagine him like walking down the street and singing because that's the kind of landscape that's been set for you. And, and it, it produced an album like we talked about last time that is going to leave an amazingly long lasting impression. Uh, one other interesting tidbit I hadn't realized was that uh, Ronaldo Benson, one of the performers from the Four Tops, was on tour. He viewed the riots in Berkeley and he wrote the song What's Going On? And he actually tried to sell it and uh, gave the song to Marvin Gaye to convince him to sing it. But Marvin Gaye took half the writing credit in order for singing the song. So <laughs> this goes into one of those things again where, you know, it is important to know exactly who, you know, is behind these things. But, you know, if you want to get into that, there could be a producer, engineer, ghostwriter on a on a thousand records that, that deserve a lot more credit than they get. It was also the first time that the, the heralded Funk Brothers, who were the group that backed the bulk of the Motown bands from that era... Uh, were named singularly on this album as as musicians rather than just the Funk Brothers, which was uh, another big step in in a lot of ways, and also one of the reasons the music is just so on point on this record. So, all that being said, it is a, a clear number one. All right, Benny. On the other side of this matchup, we have Paranoid by Black Sabbath, and you know we're going to talk about Nevermind by Nirvana in a little bit in this bracket, but. I think Paranoid is one of those records that really is like a like a, a segue record between what was and what was going to be. Uh, comes in at number eight here. Benny, do you like the seating? And how do you think it fares on this side of the bracket? I mean, I like the seating just because, again, it's a record that you don't see on these lists often. And one of the reasons I think you don't see it on this list is because, you know, with the exception of maybe Led Zeppelin or something, hard rock of this generation and, you know, this in particular, what became metal, is something that is, like, just, I think, highly undervalued as, like, uh, the way it's looked at culturally and stuff. You know, so, you know, j just to throw it out there, like, if you talk about the 90s and you talk about the great songwriters in the 90s and the people who are on the radio a lot and made iconic music and things that you can sing along to that represent that time you will almost like never see James Hetfield credited for any of that, you know, uh, even though he has like a number of the most iconic things from that time. And it's because he fronted what's deemed like a metal band, which for whatever reason, culturally was deemed like less significant music. It didn't make them any less big, but it, uh, you know, it culturally doesn't hold the weight. Like there are times when, you'll find a better review in a Rolling Stone of like a Bell and Sebastian record than a Metallica record, because that's just what, you know, the, um, the culture suits. So I think the idea that this record came out in 1970 and it was especially Tony Iommi with the, um, the dark imagery, uh, the nearly, you know, like 
borderline satanic imagery that he used and then just those fucking riffs and i don't think you could find a hard rock guitar player who has come after that who basically didn't take something from tony iomi and what they were doing so i think it deserves to be in the conversation um it was controversial when it came out a woman in England had, had killed herself while playing this record. So I think that was one of the reasons Ozzy and Black Sabbath and, you know, it got attached with like the occult and very, you know, negative things. Um, another reason why it kind of became something a little more lasting probably. And uh, I think it deserves to be there. I mean, if, if you at any point, like, uh, like you said, Nirvana or Metallica or even, you know, huge bands of the 2000s like Linkin Park or something you know none of those bands are around without Black Sabbath and I think just given the year it comes out you know 1969 as we've talked about many times big year for music but 1970s new decade a lot of uncertainty heading into that decade and and I think really for a lot of people this was a, a record that met the time all right our next matchup here we have Nevermind by Nirvana versus Dark Side of the Moon. Boy, people that uh, are like to sit in their room, smoke a little <laughs> bit, and put on records in the 90s, really torn between this one. Uh, I know if we probably asked half the cast of Freaks and Geeks, they wouldn't be able to decide on this one. But uh, Nevermind coming in at the two seed here, Dark Side of the Moon, the seventh. Benny, uh, I mean, I think the the influence and the longstanding nature of Nevermind is interesting, but... What I want to hit on first with this, you know, a lot of these records that we see blow up posthumously, you know, after people die, you know, they get recirculated. How much do you think that happened with this album? And do you think it's it, it, it's important to focus on the music when it comes to this conversation or like the overall, you know, like what it's become since? Uh, I mean, both. I think all of them have to take into account when you're talking about... Um, you know, lasting records. Not all of them made an impact when they came out, but that's for a variety of different reasons. I mean, like, pop music is not always the best music. And it, and it, exactly. whatever, and whatever time that it comes out, you know, the tastemakers and the label owners and those types of people are the ones who decide what comes out of the end of the funnel. And uh, so, so the lasting part of it, plays a huge role because like take for instance what's going on by marvin gay again like that record's still never gone platinum technically mm. you know what i mean so but we can talk about it as this because of the, the lasting impact it had and the fact that these songs are never going to go away and then you could have a, a record that has three number one singles and literally like forget about that artist and those songs nine months from then because it was never very substantial. So I think it has a huge role, but with both of these bands, it happened at the time. And I think the effects that they had on the industries at the time were almost just as important because, you know, Nirvana, as you know, represented a scene, you know, I'm not going to say Nirvana did it by themselves because right. There's a you know enormous Seattle scene and the bands that came before them deserve a lot of credit you know without without the Melvins without Mud Honey you know mm. without Soundgarden there's no Nirvana either so you know the whole scene deserves respect but Nirvana obviously became the um, 
the faces of a movement. Uh, and you literally had, a, you know, an entire decade focused on, um, you know, not just pop, but 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 synth music. Like, mm. you know, I, I just talked about this with somebody the other day. You can listen to any artist who spanned from the 70s to the 90s, and you can tell when they were in the 80s. Mm. Because, they, you know, like there's a Leonard Cohen album in the 80s. And of course, it's got the cheesy drum samples and the synth sounds, you know. Uh, Neil Young stuff in the 80s had it. Like Bob Dylan stuff in the 80s had it. Like everyone fell victim in the 80s. And, and it was just because it was modern technology and it sounded cool and it was what was going on. But by the end of the 80s, especially with like, you know, the cheesiness and the absolute plastic nature of like cock rock and radio <laughs> rock at the time, uh, bands like this came and just completely infected like a young version of people who were totally done with that shit. I mean, it was also like people growing up with it. Like I grew up watching MTV and I'm nine years old, like watching videos about some woman's fucking cherry pie. And, uh, you know, like really like over the top misogynistic, like really crazy shit. And, you know, now I'm like 10 or 11 and I'm starting to learn about the world and start to get deep. And then this dude comes out who's just like, kind of just looks like an angry 16 year old in my school and and just really connected with people. I mean, almost in a way now that Billie Eilish is sort of connecting with with a younger generation, we'll probably see her name on here in, in 10 to 20 years, I'd imagine. Um, what was cool is that uh, for me personally as well, funny anecdote, was I used to go to, I used to get dragged on the weekends by my mom, who was a record collector, to record shows, uh, you know, which was essentially a bunch of vendors who own shitty record shops and stuff around New Jersey who set up tables in like, you know, the basement of a holiday inn and, you know, nerds like my mom go and haggle for prices and get rare vinyl. Uh, and this was what we did on the weekend. She'd take me, she'd promise me some like shitty food at the diner if I went. Uh, but you know, because of it, I started trying to collect like the music I was into and, I was getting into some harder stuff and I remember, you know, the guys who worked these stands, I, I'm not trying to be misogynist. It was mostly men at that time. I don't know why it was like, and they all kind of looked the same in my eyes, but I thought they were the coolest. Like I was like, these are the guys that know everything about music, blah, blah, blah. So I went up to one of the tables and I'm like, Hey, I like this and this and this. Can you recommend anything? And they gave me a tape of Nirvana bleach. Um, and I listened to it. I didn't quite understand it. I more like kind of pretended to like it because I knew it was cool, uh, <laughs> but didn't actually like it. And then because of it, though, I was like hip to the fact that Nevermind came out. And I had that record early and I remember bringing it to school. I must have been, I don't know, sixth, seventh grade or something. And, uh, you know, it had the picture with the little penis on it and um people were like yeah what's that and i thought it was so cool because you know i was different than everyone and then it turned out to be the thing it was uh but what was cool about that was the first singer of my first band a guy named john mopper saw that i had written nirvana in my backpack and was like oh that's cool and he was like older than me in eighth grade i thought he was cool anyway so i was very uh impressed and then about a few months later i 
I had been playing drums in my house, but I had sort of half stopped and uh, I was maybe like losing interest a little bit. And as kids do, you know, if something else had grabbed my attention at that time, drums could have easily gone to the wayside. Who knows? And uh, he had a band and my friend Nick Park was playing drums for him. Something happened with Nick Park. And they said, oh, I heard you had a drum set. And I said, yes. And even though I had barely been playing at the time, I went and tried out with this band. And one of the songs I played was Come As You Are by Nirvana. So in sort of a, a half backwards way for me, and I imagine a lot of people my age, Nirvana definitely like helped me and also facilitated me just like being in bands and playing music. Nirvana's first number one record and in... 1992 replaced Michael Jackson at the top spot. Like, is I mean, I mean uh, you, the king of pop music, and Nirvana goes to the number one on the pop chart. Just unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and it was crazy too. Like, because I can imagine older people than me at the time being like, "Wait a minute, that's the fucking drummer from the Germs," <laughs> and he just like beat Michael Jackson, you know, like in the number one chart. Like, it really was some pretty revolutionary shit. And then on the other side of this matchup, the other poster T-shirt that every middle schooler has had from from the time it came out until probably the end of time, it's Dark Side of the Moon. Benny, coming in at, at, at number seven in the, the seating, too high or too low for you? Uh, you know, I think it would say it was too low. But again, you know, this is we're not going off record sales here. And that's one of the most impressive things about Dark Side of the Moon. You right. know, that's... Not our barometer, but you know what's funny about this matchup? It's like uh, every like thirteen year old getting into music. It's like their velvet poster and their new poster <laughs> like next to each other. You know, um, like the first one they got when they smoked a joint, and then and then the one they got a year later when they started like drinking some beer. You know, <laughs> um, but Dark Side of the Moon. When you listen to it now. I think the thing that stands out the most is like, like the tricks in that record, like that music and that record and what they were doing at the time went for more than just like a typical album experience. It was going for like a, a visual experience and an emotional experience with the soundscapes, what they were talking about, the concepts, like it was much deeper. And that's one of the lasting parts of Dark Side of the Moon is the fact that you kind of need to figure out what they're even talking about. And at any time when you figure it out and associate it to what's going on, that could be then or now, the topics are really pertinent, you know, and the things that they're trying to get through are really pertinent, but they're not done in like a rage against the machine kind of way. They're done in a very experimental and groovy kind of way. So I think it really is one of those experiential records that like takes people through a thing. Like there's probably a lot of people who listen to dark side of the moon for the first time and could tell you the, the time and the place they did it. Um, and then it just really enhanced like anything that was sort of, I'd say like, you know, arty or indie or, or experimental after the time. I mean, like does a band like Radiohead exist as they were without an album like dark side of the moon Do those soundscapes start to come about. Um, so I think that that's one of the lasting impressions. And then again, it's not like they've released new singles, you know, dark side of the moon hasn't had like a Bohemian Rhapsody, uh, Wayne's world, you know, experience like this record has just stayed in the charge just by kind of being awesome 
and by being like handed from person to person as time goes on. All right, next match up here, and uh, this is one I Benny's really excited for, as am I. Uh, the three seed, it takes a nation of millions to hold us back by public enemy versus the six seed, Elvis Presley, the Elvis Presley album. I mean, how could you not love this? This is just like <laughs> culture on a fucking plate for you, you know? I mean, even the fact that Elvis was criticized, and rightly so, for sort of maybe... At one time, and I don't blame Elvis for this in his career because I do think he's a very uniquely talented guy. But, you know, he took a lot of his music and he took a lot of his uh, thing from black music. And even though he credited it and at times, you know, really paid homage, uh, it's been not a dark spot in his career the whole time, but it's got to be something that's noted, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, And the idea that it's going up against Nation of Millions to hold us back it's just kind of funny to me. Um, I mean, let's talk first about why that record is so important. I mean, hip hop is the gold standard of music right now. You know, like like hip hop is no longer hip hop. Hip hop is like what you would now call rock, hmm. where you could you could have Metallica and you could have Beck, and they're both rock music. You know, and that's to the point now that you can have Post Malone and Public Enemy. And they're both hip-hop, somehow. You know what I mean? Even though they sound fucking nothing alike and they're talking about none of the same shit. So I think you're looking at one of the foundational parts of hip-hop that changed it in a very significant way for, like, forever and, and really shifted it at that time. So, I mean, the thing with Public Enemy was they were on Def Jam, and this record came out, you know, shortly after the Beastie Boys and LL Cool J both broke into mainstream. And even though I really respect both of those artists at the time, especially, you know, the songs they were singing were love songs, were party songs. Uh, even though the music was cool, the delivery was cool, the message wasn't important or vital. You know what I mean? Um, even though LL Cool J is fucking from Queensbridge, and I'm sure had a million stories, he was singing like, I want love. And, and you know, <laughs> doing the kind of the pop star thing a little bit and trying to be one. So this came out on Def Jam right after that. And I think people, at first, you'd find it to be a little like maybe too brash for the mainstream. But the cool thing about this record, it's uh, production and the music and the sampling and how well it was done and how put together of a record it was, it, it kept it its quality good enough to ride that Def Jam train into some version of the mainstream. But then people were just met with the reality of these lyrics and the thing that Chuck D was saying. And not just saying, I mean, he was, it was like Chuck D was like beating you up when he rapped, you know, <laughs> like he, he like just that hard hitting, like powerful thing he had going on. And then all of a sudden, You know, you have people who just got interested in hip hop from white America, from middle class America, hearing this and actually being open to it and open to its concepts. And you can't do that if the music is just dog shit, you know. Um, So this record deserves a lot of credit for the fact that it's like an amazingly well put together album mixed with that message. And because of the timing and maybe... I wouldn't be surprised if Chuck D very well knew the timing. 
it, it had that kind of impact. It's like what my mom used to say, you know, you gotta, you gotta change things from the inside out, hmm. you know? And Chuck D, very famously a big Clash fan, so oh, yeah. a lot of that punk music and the the messaging of that coming out in a form that was you know more about where he was from and and all of that stuff. And it's been fun working at NBA Radio. By the way, Chuck D, big NBA Radio fan. He always DMs us and and, and calls in and and stuff like that. So so Lakers fan, Lakers fan. Ah. Uh, everything fan he loves lebron like it's crazy but uh even to this day listening to this record it still you know sounds almost unlike anything because from like the start of it where you know when i replaying it for this you know the start of it comes and it it sounds like it's going to be a live record and then it's Mm. just this like in your face punch you in in the mouth and quite frankly like at at that time even more so than now it's just faster than anything that's on like the radio Mm, and and, and stuff like that so between that and the message because this record is on every other single record that comes after that i mean you look what Pac did you look what biggie did jay to a a a lesser extent and then even kendrick to pimp a butterfly a lot of the same messaging from this record all these years later so and then uh, on the other side of this, we have the Elvis Presley record. And I think where these two records are synonymous is they both <laughs> is they both met a moment. A lot of It Takes a Million's popularity came with the birth of like music sharing on the internet. And, and the early days of that is how it spread. It was very popular. They had very early social media, like your MySpaces and all that stuff. So... And Elvis Presley, very much the same way. I mean, you get on like a, like a show like the Ed Sullivan Show or any of those variety shows, and it spreads like wildfire. So those these two albums very much met the moment. And I think where they differ is obviously in their uh, messaging. A, a lot of the Elvis stuff was, you know, rock and roll and being rebellious and shaking your hips as compared to It Takes a Nation was much more political. Uh, I mean, well, I think there could be something to say at the time for what we're talking about almost in reverse. Yeah. So there was something about Elvis that was connected and legit enough for your like mainstream white user at the time to be able to allow him to do that stuff. You know, like, like, uh, there was something about the fact that, like, where he was from, the fact that he was, like, a good country boy, uh, you know, the uh, idea that he was in the military, he went to the military, you know, happily went, even though I don't think he did much, it was more ceremonial. Um, <laughs> and and I think, you know, when you present this image and then you present the songs you were doing at the time, it's not like you could just put anyone in Elvis's place and it right. would have laid out the same. Exactly. Uh, you know, there was a very serious like cultural thing that he connected with and i think he knew of course at the time exactly what he was connecting with and what he needed to do to light that fire um and i also you know we didn't live through it and we're a little farther disconnected from it but you know the fury people had over elvis presley and the the messaging and the idea that like one artist who you hear on the radio is literally going to like infect your daughter to like the devil um, that's a pretty impactful thing. And I think you could make the argument it's pretty political too. Uh, 
And you could definitely make the argument that it changed the course of music as much. Now, the reason I have it in a six seed and a little lower in the totem pole is, again, I don't find these things to be the most wonderful albums. You know what I mean? Like Elvis is Elvis. He's a song man. He's bigger than this. It's like it's like his albums were not the the consequential part of what he did. So that's where when it comes down to a list like this, um, you know, someone like Elvis has to be represented. But to me, it doesn't have like the quintessential album that you just put there, you know? See, that's the whole thing for me with this conversation is uh, the influence in the year 2020. Not in mm-hmm. 1955 where you couldn't shake your hips or, or you had this, like, say, three Hail Marys or whatever. <laughs> right, right. We're talking right now in the current social climate. So I think if you look at it from that standpoint, millions wins this by a landslide. I wish I could get the numbers, the stat cast numbers <laughs> on how many times Elvis was talked about in a confessional in the 1950s, you know? That's so There's crazy. There's probably a lot, yeah. a lot of Hail Marys, a lot of Hail Marys for Elvis, I think. <laughs> All right, moving on to our last matchup of the day, and it, it pits Carol King against Stevie Nicks. That's right. We have Fleetwood Mac's Ooh. Rumors versus Carol King Tapestry. You know, we've, we've joked a lot about on this podcast about how, you know, like record guys always want to be like, Oh, make it sound more like Fleetwood Mac. Benny had did the great impression a couple weeks ago. Uh, but tapestry, I, I think is, is a record that not a lot of people would consider in this conversation, but Benny, this album was non-consecutive weeks. Number one had the record for that for almost 20 years until Whitney Houston came along. So, uh, has four number ones on here. So I think the really important thing to note here with Carol King is, uh, you know, her singer-songwriter, and that's something we see a lot in music today, especially in modern pop music. You see a lot of that, and uh, I think up until a, a certain point in this country, you know, women were expected to be these pop stars. You know, like to be able to be a singer-songwriter, to have your music heard, but to also be a pop star and have four number one is a great testament to what this record is on Tapestry. Yeah, and it's a really easy album to listen to. I mean, I feel like, again, if we're if we're going into like, you know, represented parts of music, uh, you know, it could be considered an easy listening record, and it might be our only easy listening <laughs> record on here. But it's smooth and it's impactful. The lyrics are great, and you can't deny the uh, the power it had um, for 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 many many years. And then on the other side of this matchup, Fleetwood Max rumors. Benny Horowitz, you have the floor. Oh, I love this. I love this this album. I mean, just sheerly for the fact, right? So the keyboard player and the bass player were married for eight years, went on a six-month-long tour and got divorced. And then Stevie Nicks and Lindsey Buckingham, who weren't even original members of the band. I mean, everyone forgets Fleetwood Meek were weird. They were weird as shit in the 60s. And and Peter Green's Fleetwood Mac. I, listen, I've been in a bus with Ian Perkins <laughs> many, many times. Just going, no, 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 no. Have you heard Peter Green's Fleetwood Mac? And then all of a sudden from, you know, 2.30 in the morning to 4, I'm just taking on a ride. Uh, you know, like, <laughs> you know, a pink fo- uh, Fleetwood Mac ride. Uh, so, so there is such a long, it's one of the cool things about this record is there's such a long history of this band already. 
And then, like, in all accounts, like, the band just should have broken up. You know, like, the bass player and the keyboardist get divorced after eight years. Lindsey Buckingham and meet, um, uh, uh, and uh, Stevie Nicks have their thing going on, and it's on and off, and it's messy. And I don't even know you know, how they got through recording this album, maybe drugs. I don't know. But, but, um, that tension, that thing on the record, like is so palpably cool. The fact that there's like a number of times on the record, you can literally hear Stevie Nicks singing to him directly to him, a guy in his, you know, in her fucking band. Like how crazy is that? Um, so, and then, you know, beyond like the theatrics of the record, obviously it had a half dozen just undeniably great, you know, soft rock classics that are just never going away. Uh, the vocal harmonies are something that I think is maybe the most impactful, uh, uh, lasting uh, thing that this record gives you is like they did a. Um, a real, you know, tapestry <laughs> of, uh, of vocal harmonies on this record going from high to low and all over the place that I think kind of set a new gold standard for what female male rock music is going on at the time. And then, you know, another thing that, you know, keeps getting boosted by, you know, Forrest Gump and, you know, movies and stuff through the years, just like, re-putting these songs onto the map and um and keeping it pertinent and um yeah i don't think you could you could deny rumors and benny i think the really interesting thing about rumors is the fact that while they were recording it they were all at each other's throats and the only time that they talked to each other was through the songs um I'm not sure if this is unprecedented in in recording music but have you seen anything like this in your years in the industry I mean, I'd say it's fairly unprecedented. You know, uh, I'm sure there have been relationships and bands that it's... But this has to be one of the most, if not, you know, one of the most famous examples of it. But it actually happened to me. I, uh, when I was a younger musician, I, you know, made the mistake of being a little stupid and precarious. And I had a very short-lived relationship with someone who was in my band. And... Uh, that subsequently led to a period of time, maybe a year or two, where I had to perform a song that was about me. Uh, you know, I don't want to get too into it, just on the <laughs> off chance that there are people who know exactly what I'm talking about. <laughs> but yeah, it's it's not the best move. But let me tell you one thing. Rumors got a lot bigger than the record I was making. That's one thing I know for sure. So I guess I did it wrong. Maybe I should have kept the relationship going while we were recording, you know? I was too smart about it, Denny. It's too smart. Too rational. Too rational to make great albums. You, know? oh. you gotta you gotta put yourself in the Brian Wilson headspace to make great albums, you know? Well speaking of trying to accomplish greatness, it's time to make our picks for the Marvin Gaye region here. All right, Benny, let's start with What's going on? The number one seed versus Paranoid by Black Sabbath. Who you got? I mean, I mean, as much as I advocated for Black Sabbath on this list, I can't have Marvin Gaye kicked off already. It's it's uh, my my number one seed's going through. 
Awesome. Yeah, I like Marvin Gaye as well. I mean, if if you value what we're trying to do here, you'll put Marvin Gaye through. Yeah. Number two seed, Nevermind versus Dark Side of the Moon. I feel like this one's going to be closer than the experts think. Benny, what do you got? Yeah, pure nepotism. Nirvana's rolling this one. Come on. <laughs> it's got it. It's got it. it. It'd be only right. All right. Then we have Elvis Presley versus it, it Takes a Nation of Millions to Hold Us Back. Benny, who do you got? I Like, listen, I've been to Graceland. I like the story. I'm into the thing. It was my, my wife's grandma's favorite artist. I still have hung pictures of this guy up in my house as a result. But... As far as great albums go, I'm bringing Nation of Millions through. Chuck D's my guy. Nation of Millions. On to the next round. All right, final one here. Rumors versus Tapestry. Carol King, Stevie Nicks, cage match. Who you got? I'm going Mac. I'm going Mac. I could listen to Rumors any day, any time. It's like a little mini orgasm for my ears. I'll I'll take it every time. (laughs) Benny, we've agreed way too much on this podcast. Rumors is one of my favorite albums. Landslide, The Chain, all of those hits. But I fought really hard for Carol King to be in here. I think, uh, you know, modern pop music in the way that we see it now. Uh, I'm not sure if Madonna is popular without the music of Carol King. Definitely your Taylor Swift's of the world, not pop- possible without Carol King. So, Tapestry, I'm going to vote you through to the next round. I like it. You just Mike <laughs> Wilbon me. That's awesome. That, that's what we got to do here. We got to keep it that's pro. interesting. That's pro. That's I really pro. wanted to go. I mean, yes, I like because as I was listening back to our one from the other day, I was like, how do we agree on on everything? But uh, okay, it's not we'll our say. A, it's not we'll our say. A little more disagreement yeah. that matters in this thing. It's your say. So get to the Tune Up HQ on Twitter and Instagram. Put in your votes. Let's see what happens here. I have a feeling people are going to tell us that we're wrong with this all the time, but you want to know something? We're here for it because at the end of the day, it's your voice that counts. So that is Listen. the Tune Up HQ on Twitter and Instagram to vote. I I, uh, I never claim to be right all the time, <laughs> Denny. Wrong all the time. Wrong all the time. All right. Plenty of ways to get in contact with the show. We'd love to hear your long-form explanations about which record is better. Send those to the tuneuppodcast at gmail.com. Plenty of ways to get in contact with us. You can follow him on Twitter at Benny Horowitz1. Number one in your mind, number one in your hearts, number one on Twitter. I am at Denny underscore Gallagher. Benny, anything else? Yeah, be safe out there, and everybody love everybody. Stay hunkered down. Put the tunes on. You got it going on. This has been the Tune Up. <laughs>